New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions, but the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans-Rams 2000 Super Bowl, an instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street, accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened to O.J. Simpson. And look what happened to Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. Listen to the 48 Hours Podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Shiloh, and I'm here with Dr. Scott. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I had a rough day yesterday. And of course, I reached out in sequential order to my three best support buds. And you were the first one I called and you were like really helped me through it. So I really appreciate that. Aww. Yeah, we have those days. Everybody has those days for sure. Yeah. And in our line of work, there's... It takes a lot. It's a high bar. But. I was going to say like, and I have to, I have to give myself credit. My, what is my refractory period coming back from it after I vented slashed processed with you? I was like, all right, back in the real world, not dissociating. Great. Okay. Here right. we go. We're good. Okay. I got a podcast episode <laughs> to work on. This will be fine. Oh I'm fine. Gosh. Everything's yeah. fine. <laughs> Typing like Kermit. 
just typing like Kermit all night long, getting this done. Well, good. So we're back with episode 105 and we will get into that in a moment. We have a couple things off the top first. Yes. So we are switching a couple of things around this month. So today you're going to be getting a vintage episode as scheduled, but we will release the documentary episode next week and then a psych episode on the fourth week of August. So it's going to be a little bit different than our usual drop for the last couple of months, but we'll get back on schedule. This was just sort of a last minute scheduling thing as we have so many things coming up this month. Well, actually, the next two and a half months, it's going to be a lot. Our upcoming documentary episode will be episode one of the Netflix docuseries Web of Make Believe death by SWAT. We've been wanting to talk about this for a long time. So this was the perfect opportunity since something's already been produced and we could comment on it while giving you a breakdown of what's happening. We're finally going to talk about swatting. So please make sure you watch that episode before you listen to our next episode. It's quick. It's only like, I think a couple of minutes over an hour. Maybe if that, yeah. Yeah. So please watch. Yes. And then Saturday, August 20th is going to be our next live stream. We are going to have Dr. John Delatore back to talk about the black sheep effect or black sheep phenomenon. And it has to do with like in groups and out groups and how we view other people. And he and I started texting about this in relation to the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial. So we thought it would be really interesting. Yeah. And that's got a lot of buzz. We've been having a lot of people knocking on the window about that for us. So. Yes. So we kind of came up through that idea around and I said, why don't we have you back in August and we'll chat just about that phenomenon in general as well. So catch that live stream for sure on YouTube. We had a little bit of a snafu last month, but we I'm sure have it all squared away now. everybody that's listening, she wanted me to jump in and blame it on her for not paying the electric bill. And it wasn't at all. (laughs) It's new technology. Anytime we try to get up to speed on a new aspect of this, it's difficult. No, I went the cheap route. Let's say what it is. I went the cheap route. I went the free trial route and it cut us off. (laughs) We didn't know. We didn't know. And now we know. Yeah, well, now we know we have it squared away. We have begged Dr. Joni to come back because we had such a great conversation with her that y'all missed out on like the last 40 minutes of the thing. So, so much um, information. So much information. Yes. yes. So she is going to come back after our groveling for sure. So yes. we'll have that lined up soon. <laughs> yes. So let's give a, a recap on our last episode. Just so you know, last week in episode 104, pseudosciesis and pregnancy related crimes. We explored the psychological phenomenon of false pregnancy and other behaviors and crimes driven by the desire to become pregnant or have a child. So please give it a listen if you haven't yet. It is something that like a weird synchronicity, like we had multiple people at the same time (laughs) asking us to do an episode on this. So we were like, okay, the universe is telling us this has to be our our next episode. Yep. So please give it a listen. For sure. So onto our vintage episode for today. Trigger warnings here. We're going to be talking about murder, suicide. That's going to include the murder and physical abuse of some elderly persons, which also is a topic that you and I are talking about, perhaps exploring a little bit more in a psych episode. Yeah. So those are the things that our episode will contain today. But in terms of the time period, we are right back in the middle of the decade that gave Los Angeles 
Clara Phillips and Madeline Openchain, whom we talked about previous episodes. So a few things to remember about the setting. LA was booming in economy at this time period. Early 1920s is where we're going today. And development was booming as well as people were moving west to find their fortunes, as well as the really peculiar phenomenon of the Sob Sisters. So that was the framing of these crime stories in the media in which these female perpetrators were really by their cheerleaders being seen as misrepresented victims and they were getting immense media coverage and really seen as darlings. And we saw that depicted, of course, in the Broadway play and film Chicago. And you and I talked about that extensively with some of our other vintage episodes on our murderesses. So also in Los Angeles, there were plentiful job opportunities. It attracted heavy immigration, especially from rural Midwest and then Mexico. And the city's population more than doubled in size from about 577,000 people to over 1.2 million people between just 1920 and 1929 which is massive. This influx of families immigrating from Mexico essentially helped to triple the Los Angeles Mexican population, which reached 97,000 by 1930. And the city became known as, quote, the Mexican capital of the United States. And I put that in there, not just for a snapshot of time period, but it will also play into our story a little bit today. Absolutely. It is a theme that pops up at one point. So the title of our episode today, I am basically borrowing from the Patricia Highsmith novels of the talented Mr. Ripley. And we are talking about the very talented Mrs. Pete. So just because of the span and types of crimes that were committed by this woman. So here we are diving into another L.A. noir crime spree. So I just want to paint a picture for you, going back to some of the things you've heard us talk about when it comes to dark triad, when it comes to psychopathy, sociopathy, and just criminality. Have you ever been approached by someone that you just trust almost immediately? Like, they just radiate a vibe that says, wow, this person has it all together. They have great ideas. They're so sweet. They're so compassionate. What great support. They're organized. And they want to help. Look, Louise Pete was one of these people. She was healthy, very hearty. She was a well-dressed woman who had a really wonderful way of inserting herself in other people's lives. And as described in The Strange Case of Louise Pete by Charles G. Booth, here's a quote. Louise was a nice-looking property herself, around 37, well-poised, a stunning brunette, somewhat on the plump side, with one of those wonderful complexions that never age. I'm sorry, first, just off a nice looking property. <laughs> it is the 1920s. Well, I mean, that was this was written in the 40s, actually. So in the mid 40s, there's an author writing about a crime that spans two decades. And yeah, I mean, it's very misogynistic and objectifying language. So ho hopefully we can have a giggle about it. It's also kind of what we love about that book that we pull from with these vintage episodes is the style of writing. And you really get a taste for what it was like. Yeah in especially women's issues. So take that for what you will. Right. So now by 1944, Louise was still looking remarkably well-preserved, especially as she had spent a solid 19 years in the California state prison system for murder. And here she was again in a courtroom many years later, facing remarkably similar charges and situations, if nothing else, to prove she was definitely consistent in her criminal patterns. So when we look at the big picture of 
the background of Louise Pete. On one hand, going back in time through newspapers.com and all the access of resources and microfiche that we have available via computer now, there's a good bit of information about the trials moving forward. But Mm -hmm. before that, there's very little. Yeah, I could not find much on her in her background really before 1920, but I found a little bit. So supposedly she was born in Bienville, Louisiana, and spent some time on the East Coast. And that's where she married a man named Richard Pete, which is her namesake at this point. And then at some point, she moves to Waco, Texas in her 30s. And as the research says, begins dating a rich oil man who really was into diamonds, it seems. He had lots of diamond belt buckles, big diamond rings, just very Texas, (laughs) which we will be there in a couple weeks. And soon enough, oddly enough, this Texas oil man boyfriend of Louise's ends up dead from a gunshot wound. Hmm. Yeah, so there wasn't really any scuttlebutt about who had done this. And Louise claimed that she defended herself because he was attempting to sexually assault her. She was tried for the killing and she was actually able to give her own tearful testimony in her defense. And it worked. The jury acquitted her. They loved her. They even cheered when it was announced to the court that she was not guilty. And really, everyone believed that she had won the fight for her life against this really brutish, abusive man. So we don't have really more details than that, but it sort of sets the stage for Louise moving around the country, like you said, infiltrating into someone's life, and here this person ends up dead, but she gets away with it. So at this point, she's out of cash flow, escaping with her freedom because she was found not guilty, and she turns her sights towards Los Angeles. So one thing to remember here, if you're listening, is to just pick up repetitive patterns because we're going to be seeing that and talking about it at the end. But wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get back to May 1920. In May 1920, she was definitely spending most of her time in what was the upper upper middle class homes of what is now the hip area of LA called Koreatown. Back in 1920, this area was just plain swanky with booming businesses on Wilshire Boulevard just a few blocks away, the huge glorious Ambassador Hotel going up, I think about three blocks from the house. So when she laid eyes on the house at 675 South Catalina Street, it must have really gotten her attention. As real estate agents say, location, location, location. Now, it's not clear whether Louise had been doing some research and reconnaissance on Jacob Denton, or if it was just this house, his house that mesmerized her. Maybe she saw potential and just wanted to work it. Who knows? But what we know from interviews was that Jacob Denton was a successful businessman with mining interests all over the country. And at age 46, his already successful ventures in Arizona were working very well for him. Denton was a handsome, outgoing, virile, and athletic man. By 1920, he had been twice married, divorced by his first wife, and then widowed by the death of his second wife. Actually, both his second wife and an additional child were lost to influenza. And his only surviving child was a daughter named Frances who lived with her mother in Arizona. As he was often traveling for long periods of work, it may be that Louise was responding to an ad or a call for a house sitter or a housekeeper. Again, with all of the focus on the trials, there are some certain things that are left out. So that's one area that it's not really spelled out about how she got the connection to this particular house unless she just found one she liked. But according to Louise, after Denton goes mysteriously missing, he was on the cut 
cusp of a huge oil deal that was going to make him even more wealthy and was going to necessitate even more travel than he already did. So we kind of picture Louise marching up to the front steps of this beautiful Tudor home, knocking on the door, and Denton answered. And it's likely that she thought up a good story regarding her background and assets, because at this point, she's actually still married to Richard Pete, which I don't know where he is. He pops up in Colorado later, but she had to sell this story somehow to either become employed or move into his home. And of course, she's doing all this to reel in Denton as a catch. She had a sob story about her husband being in ailing health and that he was caring for their five-year-old daughter, Betty. So there's a lot of filling in information here that we want to do, but it's mostly conjecture. Elise was likely discussed, but there's no record of one that Denton ever got around to signing formally. So on May 25th, an inventory of the home was taken in order to have it all managed by Louise when Denton left. She was now the official tenant and Mr. Denton was to utilize his bedroom while he packed and prepared to head out on the business travels in early June. So they began this working and residential relationship. It moved along well. And on May 30th, they both attended a beach party with friends of Denton's. And there was a hostess named Mrs. Ament, who was later revealed to be a cousin of Mr. Denton. She described Louise as a charming woman, one that would attract a man's attention. She also observed that Louise was attractive and paying a great deal of attention to Mr. Denton. She also later offered the opinion that Louise was seeking his favor. Oh, is that what they're calling it? (laughs) I reckon. (laughs) Well, this beach party actually ends up being the last time that friends and family and neighbors would ever see Denton alive. But according to Louise, Denton was out of town and she started getting down to business. And the business turned into a complicated and mostly contradictory tapestry of excuses and obfuscation that for a time was supported by the time period, the era's relatively slow communication means. No cell phones. It's rare that phones are in people's homes unless you have a lot of money. Basically, there's no phone machines. There's mail. How do you get to people? How do you get a message to people? Sometimes you have to pick up and go across town or you have to send a telegram. But it just clearly aided in her creating this veneer of him being out of town because she was always supposedly covering for him. For sure. However, within a week, several important business meetings were missed by Denton and noticed. And when the agencies called to inquire, Louise said that he was gone to San Francisco or he was in Arizona or back east and he did not want his location known. So Louise said she was refusing to give up that information to the people who were calling. And from here, the actions and the lies really start moving at a dizzying pace. Per Louise, Denton was either out of town or at the beach. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) She also now needed an insurance endorsement on his car as she was using it regularly for business. She asked one of Denton's business associates where she could buy some cement to use in the basement on a project. Red flag. But eventually, she settled on getting a ton of earth dumped into the basement because she was telling people that she wanted to start trying her hand at growing mushrooms. Hmm. Don't we all? Don't we all? (laughs) Sometimes. Just start that side hustle in your basement of magic mushrooms, I guess. But like you were saying, over and over, people came searching for Denton and there was always an excuse. Finally, they were told that Denton had actually injured his arm, leading to a horrible infection and an amputation. And Denton couldn't possibly face the humiliation of his injury and therefore was retreating from his friends, family, and society. And Louise told everybody that he'd wished to avoid notoriety. The notoriety of having a limb 
falling off? <laughs> well, it's interesting because, again, we don't have a lot of information here. Like, is yeah. that something that would have been considered shameful? It's possible that culturally that could have been considered shameful. He's this virile, active guy. Businessman. Right, yeah. a businessman. Is that going to be a thing? Or is that thematically something that Louise uses as an ongoing excuse and related to something going on in her? We'll talk about that a little bit later. We shall see. Yes. So Francis Denton, Jacob's young adult daughter, was wondering where is her usually attentive father? Also, where are his monthly checks that he sends to her in Arizona to keep her afloat? Both his daughter and the Aments, his cousins, finally came up with a plan. And basically they said, hey, let's head to Farmer and Merchant's Bank to see if he has cashed any checks. And they felt that if they could see that his account was active, they would rest assured a little bit more that he was doing okay. Actually, something similar that we look at now, right? If someone goes missing, first thing we do, check debit card and credit card statements. Absolutely. I mean, it's just not done electronically or you know, you have to actually physically go to the bank and kind of prove right. who you are. But in regards to that suggestion, Louise Pete felt that this was definitely the wrong move. Here's a quote. I wouldn't do that if I were you. I don't think your uncle would like it. And when somebody suggested going to the police, Louise commented, it would be much better to tell Francis to leave her father alone. He'll come back when he's ready. So on June 5th, Louise goes to Farmers and Merchants Bank with the key to Denton's safety deposit box. And she tells the banker, Mr. Victor Rossetti, that she needed to access the deposit box. And because she didn't have permission to do so, he stops her and says, you know, you don't have access. This is, you're not the owner of the account. So she says, oh, well, I need you to cash this check. And the check was written to herself and it was allegedly signed by Denton. And it was for $300. That's a lot of money at that time. Absolutely. But Mr. Rossetti finds that the signature on the check did not match Denton's signature on record. And when pressed, Louise did admit to signing the checks, but only with Denton's permission. And since his arm was amputated and he couldn't sign, she says, oh, well, he did touch the pen as I wrote his name. So, I mean, isn't that kind of the same thing? <laughs> this is the weirdest, like, she has a weird lies. And this is the first one that I'm like, what? But some of them work. And apparently right, this right. one worked. And yeah. then she kind of made comments about, you know, I'm trying to manage this poor guy's life and his family's so difficult. And that even snowed Rosetti even further because mm. clearly the plans continued to work for a time. She juggled this kiting of checks and then started selling clothing from the house, selling jewelry and furniture with varying levels of success. She wasn't always really good at what she was doing. I mean, she was kind of blatant and clumsy about things. And for as much as she was ramping up her activities, you would think that she'd have a little bit more of a solid plan and backup plan in place, but she she didn't. One of the things that she did do is that she was very unsuccessful in attempting to sell the home and get the cash for herself, all under the auspices of doing it for Denton. And when that didn't work, she set up for other renters to come in and take over with the payments and then have those payments sent to her in Colorado, where she was about to abscond to. Oh, where her husband and her daughter are. Assuming. As far as we know, yeah. Yeah. As the summer continues on, Louise continued to offer assurances to all of the concerned parties. Assurances that were often vague. They were also misleading and very contradictory. On one hand, she asserted that Denton telephoned her occasionally and that he even returned to the Catalina Street house a few times, but only for an hour or two. And 
in disguise (laughs) due to the intense shame of losing his arm. Again, like, I'm sorry, these lies are just silly at this point. Well, and it's ramping up, continuing to ramp up. And so there's now suspicion rising all around her. As more and more of these questions were asked by people, Luis began to claim that there was a mysterious Spanish lady, quote unquote, who appeared and consulted with Denton in hushed tones. Now, as far as Luis was concerned, the Spanish lady was likely the one that knew about his whereabouts. Luis breathlessly said that the Spanish lady was disagreeable and argued with Denton, and that Denton wanted to save Luis the shame of their argument and told her to go upstairs and to not come out of the room. But she also reported that she later saw Denton and the Spanish lady leaving the house and now not only had his amputated arm in a sling, but also a patch over his eye. Wait, I'm, an amputated arm in a sling? So like what was left of I, I How much was amputated? Or... I, it's so confusing. Yes. And now he's got a patch. Okay, cool. Right. Got it. So eventually Ditton's family retained private detectives, law enforcement, and an attorney to look into Ditton's disappearances. Finally, the police were beginning to ask questions. Yeah. So around the middle of August, Louise rents the Catalina Street house to a Mr. and Mrs. Thomas T. Miller and took herself off to Denver to return to her family. When she arrived in Denver and settled in, she began a series of letters and correspondences to address some of the loose ends that she had in California. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I forgot to tell you that she put Denton's house on the market while the Millers were renting from her. Oh, so she was successful that time. So she wasn't at first and then she tried again. Okay. Well, you got to say something for commitment. For sure. So to cool down that aspect, she takes the house off the market and starts directing some cash towards Denton's daughter, hoping to quell the concerns of the family, Uh, kind of keep her off her back. But... Now that September rolls around, Mrs. Miller answers the door to find Mr. Blodgett and Mr. Cody, who I saw some reports saying that cops showed up, some reports saying that the attorneys sent over the cops. So I'm guessing these are attorneys for Mr. Denton. And so Mr. Blodgett explains that they were not the police, but they were looking for Jacob Denton and who had mysteriously disappeared around what they nailed down as around June 1st. So both of them, whether they were detectives or police, politely asked if Mrs. Miller would allow them to make a search of the residence. Remember, Mrs. Miller is now the sub-lesser of the building. She cooperated freely and likely because she had been getting an earful of gossip from everybody in the neighborhood about what was going on with Louise's coming and goings over the last couple of months. So Cody and Blodgett started in the basement, and within a few moments, they found a mound of dirt covered by a tarp and a pile of old stovepipes. So they just get down to business and start scraping away dirt with their bare hands and quickly reveal a human foot. Oh, I thought you were going to say mushrooms. No, no, they found it, and he had been found. And they continued their search, now working their way up all through the house from the basement. They found in a closet a 32 caliber pistol revolver, fully loaded with the exception of one bullet. Bingo! Yep. Denton's body was examined by Dr. Frank R. Webb. He was the chief autopsy surgeon. And that was done immediately the day that his body was found. On October 20th, the body was re-examined and x-rayed and a hole was found in the neck a hole that was made by a 32 caliber 
bullet. Guess one is all it took for him. The autopsy determined that the murder had occurred around June 1st, and therefore the body was left to lay in its shallow grave for almost four months. All that time, Louise had made attempts at the bank to access Denton's bank accounts, as well as everything else we've covered. Which is kind of crazy for four months. I mean, the weather actually was a lot milder in Los Angeles at that time. It's in a cellar or a basement. The basements are generally designed to to be cooler, but right. it's not a refrigerator. Like, how could you live in that house and not smell something? I, I'm surprised they did as much on the autopsy and had so much determination. Yeah, how did they have anything decom- to work with, right? I don't know. Yeah. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. The district attorney's office started moving very quickly, and they had a famous incumbent named Thomas Lee Woolwine, and he was a very, very formidable attorney that had held that office for quite a while. He decided really quickly that Louise was the culprit, but he also read through the reams of information that had been generated about Denton's disappearance, including interviews with all of these collaterals around Louise. He immediately figured out that Louise had a really great talent for making friends and influencing people. And he knew that it was not going to be easy to pursue the goal of proving her guilt because it's all circumstantial and she's out of town. I mean, she's in Denver. So if he starts the process of extradition, which could still fail, she would immediately know that he knew that she had killed Denton. And he wasn't going to take that risk of fighting the state's extradition laws, which was a lot harder in the past, by the way, than it is now, because generally there's there's no problems with extradition state to state. Back then, there was a lot more paperwork and also a lot of state to state politics that could interfere with it. But Woolwine needed Louise back in California and of her own accord, where he could use his substantial charms to paint her in a corner. Yeah, so he was very smart about his plan. 
And essentially, a detective and an officer were chosen to head out to Denver to see if they could convince her to come to Los Angeles and help them solve the crime. So they're speaking to her narcissism and saying... We understand you're the closest to Denton in the last several months. We really need you. You're the key to all this. You know, just you're so knowledgeable. We could really use your help. And a key strategy that they used was to quell any and all media coverage of the travel, which was also huge back then. I mean, the media would be at train stations, on the train, meeting the train, especially when people were extradited. Because there's always going to be informants in the police department that are saying like, hey, they're heading out. Hey, they've got her on the train. They're going to be on this line. Make sure you're there. It was so enmeshed. But they arranged for Louise to be accompanied by train to the Cajon Pass, just at the state line, but also told her that they would take a side trip to a nearby resort the Glen Ranch, where they wouldn't be bothered by reporters or phones. And we could just, you know, see what you know, see how you could help us out. They kind of made this sound like this super secret spy mission she was helping them with. <laughs> and she agrees. Well, I got to say, even if somebody wanted to frame me, just just offer me a chance to go talk about it at a resort. And you got me like, I'm totally going to fall for it. <laughs> Wait, you wanna, you're going to take me to Palm Springs for yeah. a long weekend to talk? Hell yeah. Let's go. I'm in. Do it. <laughs> So Doran, one of the guys that went out, he planned and executed this elaborate, elaborate strategy to out with the reporters that had figured out or had been informed about who was going to be leaving when and where and on what train. So Doran and his party switched train cars, then to automobiles at the last minute, leaving the reporters trapped on the train. So we have reporters that are literally trying to jump off the train and find transport in order to follow where they're going because they don't know where they're intending to end up. What Louise didn't know was that Doran was not a police officer. He was actually a judge. And although she was virtually unflappable, her rambling lies during the interviews just took on a new life and a new level of energy. She denied, she lied, she corrected herself. She corrected Duran several times. He never lost his cool either. But she had an excuse for everything, including the cement purchase, the dirt in the cellar, the boarding up of the cellar exit, the piling of the stovepipes, all while painting this picture of herself as vital to Denton's life. Hmm. And it seems she wasn't even following her own script either. As Doran carefully laid out the timeline of Denton's disappearance versus the multiple collateral reports from friends of Louise's interactions and supposed sightings of him, she falls back on her master excuse of the Spanish lady and says she was a Spanish lady, dark type, dark eyes, dark hair, a rather oval face. She wasn't very slender. (laughs) She says, but not as stout as I am and maybe an inch or two taller. You can't always tell with foreign women. What? (laughs) I know. That quote just like jumped out in the book. You can't always tell with foreign women. I tell mean, what tell about what? what? I <laughs> how tall they are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's actually another account that I read where she ends up saying that this Spanish woman cut off his arm and a leg with a sword, and she like witnessed all of this. Okay. It's just wild. It's just just throw in the towel, lady. Well, You're done. she continues to spin this this wacko web. <laughs> 
And Doran now is finding it easier just to close in and paint her into a corner. So he is confronting her with evidence. And one of her times that she actually does lose it a little bit, she says, do you think if I had killed this man that you found in the basement, I would have spent even one night in that place? And I just can't feel that the dead man is Mr. Denton. So she's also trying to say about her own self, like, how could I do that? How could I even be in the same house as a dead body? And by the way, I don't really know if that's even him. It could be somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. But the real fear sets in for her when she is shown an x-ray of the bullet hole. And by the time she was carted back to LA in police custody, it was looking pretty tough for her. And it didn't help her that at the end of October, the papers were publishing a story that linked Louise with a grand jury investigation out of Dallas, a hotel clerk who had been a friend of Louise's, was found dead with a bullet hole in the back of his head. Oh, Louise. So that was the one that was revealed in the papers, but it didn't even talk about the one that you found. So she's she's got a habit. She's consistent, if nothing else. Yeah, sounds like she uh, wreaked havoc in Texas before California. She even told reporters that she was being crucified. She said, quote, I'm being crucified upon a cross, but I can say, as did Christ, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, end quote. Okay, let's put another narcissist red flag there. Yeah. Yeah. So as with everything, as with another woman being accused of crimes at this time, the trial was very interesting, to say the least. And like our other episodes, Louise had fervent detractors and supporters. Given the number of headlines at the time, it had really become the trial of the century because she is actually predating our other two examples from that time. And let me tell you, Louise was pissed that she was not allowed to testify. Literally was grabbed by the back of her coat by her attorney and pulled back into the chair several times throughout the trial. It worked last time in Texas. That's probably why she wanted to get on the stand. Exactly. Oh, good point. Yeah, she thought she snowed them the last time. She could do it again. So eventually she was not allowed to testify at all. The defense knew that their jig was up. The jury deliberated for four hours and came back with a verdict of guilty as charged of murder in the first degree. And then she was sentenced to life in prison. So just jumping from into the trial, moving her into prison, California State Prison, she was in San Quentin's women. She actually thrived in prison. She was moved between two to three different facilities, one of them being San Quentin. She was pretty much universally loved. She was snowing inmates and custody alike. She got Mm -hmm. great reviews. She worked in the garden. She worked in the kitchen. And basically, you know, she fit in really well to this very strong sort of controlled lifestyle. I would not be surprised if she wasn't running some kind of scam and got away with it, but clearly. Yeah, but doesn't surprise me at all that she was just able to... Adapt. Adapt and and do what she had to do. There was even a group of women supporters of hers who had arranged a campaign for her release. And I just like picture in my head, like, do you think this was like the Nexium followers who were dancing outside of Keith Raniere's federal prison? (laughs) Well, it it really is bizarre. It's culty, right? It's very culty. It's very... People get caught up in the enthusiasm of that. Yeah, I've chose. This is interesting to me. It's so interesting that I'm going to be concrete in my thinking about it rather than looking at the big picture. And then now I'm going to dive in and really have fun with it. I think that's what happens. Yeah. So after she goes to prison, right after in 1921, her husband, Richard Pete, who was still living in poverty, ends up dying by suicide. Mm. And then in 1926, while still in prison, she 
comes up with yet another wild story of how Denton died. She now claimed that the murderer or murderers who killed William Desmond Taylor, a popular film actor and director who was murdered in 1922, also were responsible for Denton's death. And she claimed, quote, William Desmond Taylor knew Jacob Denton intimately. He was a frequent visitor at the Denton home. And after Denton was murdered and I was sent to prison for life, Taylor knew I was taking the medicine for others. Basically like taking the rap. Yeah. Why? Because they would kill Betty if I talked. Taylor knew the truth too. He stood it as long as he could. Then when he could no longer bear the burden of seeing me in prison for a crime that I did not commit, he threatened to tell everything. He paid for that threat with his life, end quote. Wow. I know. that it's another good vintage unsolved crime that maybe will put on the list to cover Yes, some very interesting theories about that one. Let's put it on the Mm -hmm. list. So after her release, she, it's 1943. She spends almost 19 full years in prison. She was paroled from Tehachapi State Prison here in California. And of course, she has a statement prepared, ready to go for the press, who meets her at the gates. 19 years later, they still give a shit about what this woman has to say, which is just wild. And here is her prepared statement. 21 years ago, I pleaded not guilty to murder. I still plead not guilty. After having served 18 and a half years in bondage for a crime I did not commit, I would appreciate the opportunity to reestablish myself without further publicity. I appreciate the parole and shall not violate the faith placed in me. All right, Louise, we'll we'll see. We're Show give us you what you got. One more chance. <laughs> yes. So she was released into the care of a Mrs. Latham, who by various accounts was either a member of the parole board or actually was a parole officer. I think I think the terms have changed over the years, which is a little bit confusing. I think I may have misunderstood the archaic phrasing from the 1940s source material that I was reading, but it comes up again when she changes officers. And it seems like it's a very different thing for women at this time. It, yeah. The idea of having a parole officer is almost like having a female chaperone is like That's almost exactly, my impression. Yeah. So yeah. she wants to get out of the publicity, get out of the limelight. So she changes her name to Anna B. Lee and was given strict rules and instructions on how to navigate her parole. And she's reported to have seen and she's reported to have been observed looking down at her directions of parole and ripping them up and throwing them away. Oh, that's a, a hard that's <laughs> red a, flag right there. Yeah. So, do we think that she stayed squeaky clean with her second chance at freedom? No. She was never one to follow rules when there was no one watching, and she was going to find her own way. And what an interesting stroke of luck. Her benefactor, Mrs. Latham, was unwell and asked Louise to come and live with her. Latham ends up dying in the hospital, allegedly of natural causes, but I am suspicious here. And she gets assigned a new parole officer, so she... Packs her bags from Mrs. Latham's home, which includes a 32 caliber pistol that she found in Mrs. Latham's belongings. A woman named Margaret Logan offers Louise employment as a housekeeper. And Louise had actually known the Logans for decades and goes to live with them in the Pacific Palisades. So she was ecstatic and let other people that she was still in contact with know that she was so happy that she was going to live for the rest of her life in this oasis, this beautiful part of Southern California. So you can see where this is going, right? Because Louise picks up right back where she was with her kiting checks and money schemes, theft, real estate fraud. And it may be that Mrs. Logan was looking to make some money herself because within two months, 
the women had institutionalized Mr. Logan, asserting that he had become unwell and violent. And after a series of really complicated real estate moves, Louise just took off. She took off with Mr. Logan back in the state mental institution, and Mrs. Logan left to try and kind of clean up her financial dealings. Wow. I mean, usually it's the women being institutionalized back then. Yeah, I think the commonality here is that it was elderly, you know, when it was an elderly yeah. person. So if there's some yeah. dementia and there was a little bit of a indication that he may have had early signs of dementia and a little bit of behavioral issues because the Logans were noted by other neighbors to be in arguments, yelling at each other sometimes. Mm. So Louise heads back to Denver for a period of time, and eventually she meets and marries a very well-to-do man by the name of Lee Judson. Run, Lee, run! Please go <laughs> save yourself. And after a bit, she returns to Southern California looking for a long-term home for Mr. Logan. So Mrs. Logan called her back, but he's not meeting criteria for hospitalization anymore. So she and Mrs. Logan are, I guess, either in cahoots or in agreement that they're not going to be able to handle him. So hmm. she's looking around as as he was a former Mason. She starts approaching Masonic Temple homes to see if there's an opportunity for him to be institutionalized or cared for there. But she's the one doing all of the footwork on this. And she now comes up with a story saying that his fits, and I'm using, you know, that's an inappropriate term. We don't use that word anymore, but it was a term that was used in the literature that we read. And she reported that they're becoming more and more violent to the extent that he had bitten Mrs. Logan, who was now in hiding while she sought plastic surgery for her wounds. I'm shaking my head. I feel like I've heard this story before. Yeah, it seems very familiar, doesn't it? So Louise now picks up Arthur Logan, is able to get him back to Patton State Hospital and declared in the statement that he had hit Mrs. Logan in the face, bitter on the face and neck and nose, and she was horribly disfigured. Mm. This was enough to have Arthur committed to Patton State Mental Hospital, and no one is reported to have seen Margaret Logan alive after May 25th, 24 years before, almost to the exact day that was the last time anyone saw Jacob Denton alive. Wow. And in the midst of Margaret's disappearance... Louise is using some of her old tricks. She starts saying things like she's ill, she's not well, she's ashamed of her injuries, she can't use a pen, and it worked again for a while. So the house is in the name of an Anna B. Lee, her AKA, and by this time, the neighbors, the collaterals are all reporting that Mrs. Logan is missing and that there's this woman coming and going from the home. Police are dispatched. And at those, those days, I guess, I'm not sure how they chose the rank going out, but there was a Captain Brown from the police department that comes on the scene to investigate. And he is comparing stories, getting collateral information from the neighbors, and working with parole and realizes that the person who has disappeared is the one who has supposedly been signing Louise's parole papers for the last few months. So he's talking to her and he says, Louise... What happened? Did you blow your top and do what you did before? And Louise blushes and takes a moment to answer and replies, You know, my friends have told me someday I would blow my top. Hmm. Ooh. What an answer. 
So after a bit more questioning at the district attorney's office, Louise was then transported back to the Logan's home where she led them to a mound of dirt in the backyard under the avocado tree. And Captain Brown asked, did you dig the grave yourself? And then she replies, I did. It seemed like hours and hours. I ruined my hands. Oh, poor thing. Aww. Wow. I hope they had like that super, what is it? Utter cream? Utter ointment. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> but remember, there's somebody else in the picture as well. Her husband, Judson, who was there in California at the time. Now, it's a little unclear, but it appears that they have also had a house in Glendale and that she would go back and forth to Logan's toward the end, which is crazy because Glendale to Pacific Palisades is a long way, even at that time. Here I am being the Californians again, talking about distance. Anyway, Judson gets charged as well because he was present when she had presented Mr. Logan for commitment, and he had stated that he saw blood on the floor in the house, but he thought that it came from the face-biting incident. So authorities were never really convinced that he had helped with the murder or had helped with the concealment of the murder. So eventually the charges against him were dropped, but... This was a really stressful period for him. Not only is he found to be involved in all of this and then exonerated, at the same time, he does realize that he's married someone who's in a lot of trouble and someone that has completely lied to him about who she is. He thought he married Anna B. Lee. He's now informed that he married Louise Pete, a known convicted murderess. And in less than 24 hours after he was freed, Lee Judson threw himself down a flight of stairs at the Broadway Spring Arcade building and died on the spot. Wow. So another husband who's taken his own life, really. And this is the building where we stopped to eat on our downtown LA walking tour. Yeah. Just a little tie in there. Well, once this all happens, Louise at the start tries to take on the role as the outraged innocent person again, but the evidence was really overwhelming. Ray Pinker, who I'm sure has come up in other vintage episodes that we've done, he was the head of the police crime lab, and he was the one who did the examination of the physical evidence. The literal smoking gun was a nickel-plated 32 caliber revolver, which was covered with congealed blood and found in a drawer in Mrs. Logan's house. And oh yeah, it was engraved with the initials E-B-L. Remember, the parole agent Emily B. Latham. Mm. So autopsy details here. Margaret Logan's death had been caused by a gunshot wound, but also a brutal beating. Evidence showed that while she was incapacitated, but probably not dead from the gunshot, Margaret had been hammered to death, likely with the butt of the gun. And keep in mind, Louise was now 63 years old at this time. Yeah, I think that's significant, and we'll come back to that. Briefly on her trial, it began in April of 1945. This time, she was allowed to take the stand. She essentially blamed it on crazy Mr. Logan, stating that he had beaten Mrs. Logan and then shot her. And the jury of 11 women and one man found Louise guilty of the first degree of murder and thereby sentenced her to death. Louise was executed in a gas chamber on April 11th, 1947. It took approximately 10 minutes for her to die. She was the second woman to die in California's gas chamber. Wow. So we have a woman who killed two men, one woman, maybe more, still suspicious about her first parole officer and the other person in Texas. Right. The other guy. Yeah. Yeah. And then two husbands died by suicide. 
And she just lies her way through it all, like stupid, nonsensical. But you know, this reminds me of when we did our amnesia episode and we talked about the very primitive response of just saying, I don't remember what happened. That's what this kind of lying feels like. Well, and you know, frankly, you can turn on your television right now in the summer of 2022, where there are a lot of hearings going on and we're hearing the same thing. We're hearing a lot of people being deposed. I don't recall. I don't remember. And then when they're shown evidence of their contradictory statements, they'll just say, I don't remember. It's very interesting that that kind of defense is allowed. So, This kind of pathological lying is usually associated with ASPD, which is antisocial personality disorder, and NPD, which is narcissistic personality disorder. And it's used as a means for people to get what they want. But in Louise's case, she's not very sophisticated about her lying. She's making up ridiculous details instead of just leaving it vague, like Denton left rather than he's being in hiding due to an embarrassment of the loss of limbs, which is very interesting how she talks about other women's bodies, compares Mm. them to her own, describes herself as stout. I mean, it's kind of interesting that like there's not this self-body shaming thing going on, but there is something very sort of body horror for her about the way she makes up the excuses of amputation, of infection, of horrible disfigurement on the face. And I would also add, this is very significant. When she was not able to kill her last victim, she took the butt of the gun and she beat her to death, which is a very, very psychopathic thing to do. It's very personal. It's very up close. She could have shot another bullet. She had other bullets in the gun, but she chose in that moment. Yes, rage. Yeah. So I would definitely say that she falls into this rare category of female psychopaths. I mean, she clearly gives no fucks about killing Mm -hmm. people. She's a parasite. She takes advantage of the abled and elderly to get her needs met. She's also a chameleon. You know, she's able to charm people. It's hard for us to think, you know, we're here we are literally a hundred years out looking back Mm -hmm. at this and thinking how how could you charm how would you not get a vibe on this person who suddenly right. just inserts herself into your life and she did it to her supporters when she was on trial and she did it with her prison staff and clearly yep. with her parole agents as well so in the end Louise's incredible story, despite how humorous that we may find some of her outlandish lies to be, don't forget that in the end she left a real trail of destruction Denton's body in a basement for four months. His daughter, his ex-wife, his friends, his family, not knowing where he is. Mrs. Logan's body had been hidden in its shallow grave under an avocado tree for almost seven months. Wow. Yeah. And then we have, tragically, Mr. Logan. He ends up dying at the state mental hospital alone in a tiny room with no visitors, no real treatment, and no real understanding why he'd even been there in the first place or abandoned by his family. It's very sad. It's very, very sad. And sort of going back to other episodes we've done on institutionalization and involuntary holds or how it used to be before we Mm. had these laws that protect people's rights against being housed in facilities with their rights taken away and no real care. So thank you guys for listening. We will see you in Dallas, August 26th to the 28th for the True Crime Podcast festival with our signature special event limited edition sticker to hand out we're very proud of it it's a beautiful design (laughs) along with other swag also 
thank you to everyone who wrote in and gave us awesome swag ideas. As soon as we get some money coming in, we're absolutely going to add those to the roster. Really good ideas. Can't wait for everybody to see them. So just so you know, the ticket sales are closed for this event, but we will be partnering up with the doctors from Women in Crime, and it will be put up as an episode. So you'll get to hear every bit of us collaborating. Yes. And you can buy your tickets now if you want to join us for the Savannah Crime Expo, which is September 10th, or the Pacific Northwest True Crime Festival on August 8th and 9th. Links will be in the show notes and on our live events page of our website. Thanks a lot, everybody. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, folks. We will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Earcult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so dash confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live stream scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we would be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential.